Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be hearing this. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's edition of our Bible Bites, episode 316, as we continue to read through the scriptures this year. And my reading today is found in John chapter 19 through 21. We will conclude the book of John today, and then tomorrow we'll be moving into the book of Acts. John chapter 19 through 21, and it is loaded with so much stuff. So buckle your seatbelts, and I will do my best to get us through all of these things and it not turn into a very long um, uh, broadcast. But I'm so thankful for those of you that are hearing the broadcast, and I do pray that the Lord is speaking to you. I try to make them um, short, but sometimes there's just so much material in the Word of God, and it's just impossible to do. But here we go. John chapter 19 gives us the death and burial of Jesus. It also gives us more about his trial as well. And so verse 1, we notice that Pilate takes Jesus and scourges him. Now that scourging was an extremely torturous um, thing that they would do to prisoners. And they would use something similar, I believe it's been called a cat of nine tails, something on that order where it was like a whip that would have embedded in it a rock or flint or glass or other things like that. And when they would sling it around the torso and pull it back, it would rip the body in two. And this is what Jesus endured for us and I want to direct your attention, uh, Rick Renner, a, a well-known Greek um, scholar and, and devoted Christian teacher, he has written a book called Paid in Full, and he goes into much more detail about this scourging as well as many other things in that book. But the scourging is one of those, and if you read that, you will see that it was extremely torturous what Jesus had to endure. Then we read about the crown of thorns that they placed upon him next. And this was thorny spikes. They were very long, very, very sharp. Um, and so Jesus endured that for us. He, he endured a lot of um, their, their purple robe and their, um, their mocking of him in many ways. And so Jesus endured a lot for us. In verse 10 through 11, we see Pilate um, speaking to him and Pilate says you know why aren't you answering me when he's trying to talk to him he says do you not know that I have power to crucify you or power to release you Jesus you know comes back and he says this in verse 11 you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin so he's clarifying for Pilate that, no, your authority is delegated from the one who controls all. And we need to remember that today. There's much turmoil and chaos that's going on right now, not only in the United States, but also around the world. And we need to remember that there is ultimately one who is in control, and that is the living God that we serve. And he will see to it that his will is done in the earth, and he will have his way in the earth. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. So we just need to remember that God is ultimately in control. 
So we notice here then that Pilate tries to release him, but they say, you know, no, because, you know, if you let him go, you're not Caesar's friend. So Pilate brings him to this place called the pavement or Gabbatha in Hebrew, where there was a judgment seat, a bema seat. It was near the Antonio Fortress's Praetorium where Pilate sat and now he judges Jesus seeking to release him. But the Jews but the Jews reject him, and they will not have him. I want to read verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. So Jesus knew he was going to be crucified, and he willingly submitted to this. And so they take him to this place that's known as the place of the skull. Now, I've talked about this in earlier sessions in the Gospels as we've gone through this. It could be a specific skull, such as Goliath's skull, which we know, according to um, the Old Testament, was brought to Jerusalem and was placed and buried somewhere outside the city by David. It could refer to Adam's skull because many believe, the Jewish tradition believes that this is the area where Adam, uh, where Eden had been, and maybe Adam was uh, in the nearby vicinity, and when he died, it could be that. could be that it was the appearance of a skull, as, as it mentions here, that it looked like a skull. There's one place that you can even see today that they believe may be the place of the crucifixion because of that appearance. We do not know for sure. We do know that Goliath's skull was taken there, and it would be powerful if over the skull of Goliath, the Lord had his ultimate victory over the devil as well. Praise be to God. Then Pilate makes this sign, which they would normally make as a sign charging the crime that they were doing. So Pilate makes this sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But yet it was a true word, whether Pilate intended it as a criminal charge or not. Yet this is the truth. He is the king of the Jews. Although the Jews in that day rejected him, they will be restored and they will ultimately receive him as king and Messiah. But for now they were um, rejecting him. And he wrote it in the three most common languages that everyone in that area read um, and knew, which was Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now we have apparently four soldiers at the cross, according to verse 23 through 24. And this episode about them casting lots for his clothes and all of that is a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. It is amazing how many prophetic words from the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus, and we're constantly finding more and more of those, some of them hidden and not as much um, well-known, but yet they were fulfillments of those scriptures. We have three of the women here that were at the cross specifically named by John. There were others, but these are the three that John names here, and one of those is particularly important. And that's the mother of Jesus, because in the next few verses, we see Jesus giving over the charge of the care of his mother to John, the beloved, John the Apostle, the same author of this book. So that would have been a very important detail. He would not have forgotten, and he makes it clear that he brings that out to us as well. We go on down, we see him fulfilling another scripture, Psalm 69, 21. 
Um, then we go on down and he says, he writes for us a few of the words that Jesus said on the cross. The other gospels fill in the other details, but in John's gospel, he makes sure that he records this one as well. Um, and it is, it is finished. And what he was referring to, what Jesus is referring to is that he has now fulfilled everything the Old Testament demanded that had to be fulfilled in Messiah in the first coming. He has now fulfilled the plan of redemption. He has now fulfilled the sacrificial system. He has fulfilled every requirement for the death penalty to be paid for sin, for the sin of the world. He's fulfilled it all, and it's finished. And he willingly gave up his spirit, entrusting himself by saying, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, which is recorded in one of the other gospels. And he gave it up to the Lord, submitting to the Lord's will. Notice in verse 35 of chapter 19, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe he's identifying himself in that verse. We'll see that he also does that in one other verse in, that we're going to read today. John is telling us here, I had eyewitness testimony. I was there. I saw the crucifixion. I know what I'm talking about. I was an eyewitness to it. And he says, and I'm telling you these things because I want you to believe. I want you to believe in him as well. Praise be to God. In verse 36, none of his bones were broken and that fulfills the Passover lamb, which was pointing to him and he fulfilled entirely. That's found in Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12. This also fulfills Psalm 34, 20, and Zechariah 12, 10. Not in its fullness, though. There's still coming a day when Zechariah 12, 10 is yet to be fully known among the Jewish people as a nation and as a whole. Then in verse 38 through 42, we end the chapter with the burial of Jesus. And sometimes we may kind of... Uh, discount that, but the burial of Jesus is also very important. First of all, we see a couple of people involved in that, Nicodemus and Joseph of Ramah, who were secret disciples of Jesus up until this point, but then became, um, you know, public disciples, I believe, joined in and were probably part of the um, group in the upper room and so forth in Acts. And also, I want you to notice that there is um, an imagery here that Jesus is fulfilling for the red heifer. And that you can look up back in Numbers chapter 19. And I have a Holy Week uh, special message that I did on Facebook Live and that I'm also uploading on my podcast channels about this burial of Jesus and the beauty of the ashes of that and what the red heifer connection to his burial is all about. Then in chapter 20, we get into the resurrection and beyond. And we see the um, first few verses tell us about Mary Magdalene going to uh, the tomb, finding the stone rolled away. She's all scared. She runs to John and Peter and finds them and includes them in that. Now, other chapters tell us that there may have been more than one woman. It may have been another woman with Mary or so forth. But John is focusing in on giving us these details about how Mary Magdalene came to them, took them back to the cross, they, they I mean, to the tomb, they ran, ran back, and, um, and this all happened on Sunday, the very first day of the week, what we would call Sunday, the first day of the Jewish calendar. Now, in verse, in this passage, I want you to see something. 
because in verse 7 and 8, this is very important, the, the positioning of the clothes that Jesus had worn, his grave clothes. When, when they saw them, Peter and John look in and they see this. And it says the linen cloths are lying there and the handkerchief that had been over his, around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now that's created a little bit of confusion because there's some um, legend about a, a Jewish tradition that has not been proven true that, you know, they would fold the napkin and indicate they were coming back and all of that. And that has not been proven to be true. However, what this shows is very, very important because what this is telling us is that the linen clothes, all of the burial clothes, including the headpiece, were literally left exactly as they had been wrapped around him when he was buried by Joseph and Nicodemus. However, the body was gone. And I want to direct you to another Holy Week teaching that I did called Resurrection Power. And in there, I explain more about this and why this is important. Because what it's telling us is that Jesus, even though he had been laying there with those things bound around him in a physical body, was now alive again in a spiritual body that had come lifted straight out of those grave clothes without disturbing them at all. The only difference was the body wasn't there. This proves not only the resurrection, but it also proves that he was raised in a spiritual body from the physical body that had lain there before. And so this is very powerful and very critical that we understand it. So I direct you to that teaching if you'd like to hear more about that. So then Mary encounters the, the angels first and then the risen Lord. She looks into the tomb after Peter and John have left. She looks in again, and now she sees two angels sitting at his head and his feet where his head and feet had lain. What she sees is a beautiful picture of the mercy seat. She sees the mercy seat. Oh, hallelujah. It's beautiful there what she sees. And so then she's still confused. So Jesus, who is unbeknownst to her at the time, starts talking to her, and she thinks he's the gardener. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now notice this verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She loved him. She knew him and he knew her by name. She knew his voice. And she immediately, when he called her name, she knew it was him. Does he know you by name? I know that he does ultimately. He knows every person he's ever created. But does he know you in an intimate relationship by name? Do you have that same relationship that Mary Magdalene had with him that she could even recognize? You know, he said earlier about the shepherd, he being the good shepherd, my sheep know my voice. She knew his voice. When he called her name, she knew his voice. And so then we go on and we see. He tells her, don't cling to me yet. I hadn't ascended to the Father yet. He's going to the Father right then and there before he comes back later that day. We see the proof of that later that day because Mary Magdalene could not touch him then. There's a reason for that. 
And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to the Feast of the Lord teachings that I did, the series that I did, especially the one on the first fruits, because he is the Omer of the first fruits, and he had to present himself to the high priest before the harvest could be touched and handled and eaten. And so that was required in the first fruits. That's what Jesus is saying here. He has to ascend to God the Father and present himself as the Omer for the rest of the crop of the church, for the rest of the harvest of the church before he could be touched or handled. And so that's what he's talking about here. So in essence, this he's telling Mary, this is my first ascension. We don't always think of that. We always think of the ascension being when he left the disciples recorded in Acts chapter 1, for instance. But in essence, this was his very first ascension to God right there at his resurrection. And like I said, you can find out more about that in the first fruits teaching in the Feast of the Lord's study. But he goes, he goes away. Mary goes back and she tells all the disciples. Well, we know from the other gospels, there were a couple of things that happened that John doesn't record here because they're not pertinent to what he's, his mission is. But we know they happened because the other gospels fill in those details. Mary goes, they think she's lying to him. They think she's crazy or whatever. And then we have the Emmaus Road where Jesus is walking with the two and then he disappears and they run to the disciples and say, we've seen him. We didn't know it was him at first, but we know he is now. So all of that's happening before Jesus appears to them. But I want you to notice in verse 19 of chapter 20 of John, we have Jesus coming to them that very same day. Later in the evening, there's 10 of them gathered. Thomas is not with them. Ten is a, is a uh, minion in the Jewish tradition, and it required ten, a legal assembly was required to have ten Jewish men there, and a legal assembly could attest to something, they could um, bring forth judicial decisions, they could, they could verify something that happened. Jesus knew that. He, he fully fulfills all of that, so he comes to them proving that he is alive to a, um, an assembly of 10 men gathered together. And notice this, he's not bound by any physical limitations anymore either. He's able to appear and disappear, even though the doors are shut. He didn't have to have a door open. He didn't have to have the stone moved to get out of that grave. The stone was not moved for him to get out. The stone was moved so that the witnesses could get in and testify that he was risen. And that's another piece of the resurrection of Jesus that is very powerful that we need to understand. So then in verse 21, he speaks over them and he says, um, in verse 22, I'm sorry, receive the Holy Spirit. And so he's telling them that he's going to be giving to them the Holy Spirit now in time to come. Then after that, eight days later, we see Thomas struggling to believe in this. Jesus comes to Thomas, and he tells Thomas, go ahead and touch me and handle me. Now, the disciples were also able to handle him later that very same day. That's how we know he ascended to the Father in between the time that he saw Mary Magdalene and the time that he came and saw the ten disciples later that same day. And you can find that in all of the Gospels as well. Some of them talk about how they handled him. So now eight days later, they're assembled together and Thomas is there. And so Thomas has said, I got I to gotta touch his hands and his feet. I got to put my hand in his side. So Jesus comes and he says, here, 
reach in, put your hand in my side. Here's my, my scars, touch them. See for yourself. In verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Beloved friend, that includes me. That includes you if you've believed in Jesus because we've not yet physically seen him. That day is coming. It is ahead, but we've not yet physically seen him with our eyes. But we know he's alive inside because he lives in us and we've believed in him. Praise God. John defines for us again here in verse 31. I want to point this out again. We started his book with this, but this is his whole purpose of writing his gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John's whole purpose. Praise God. And so then, as we begin to draw down to a close for this message, John chapter 21, the main thing here is the restoration of his disciples with him. So first of all, we see at the first part that seven of them decide they're going fishing. Well, actually, Peter is the one that says, I'm going fishing. Now, that can be understood to mean I'm going back to fishing. In other words, they hadn't seen Jesus in a while. This is only the third time he's appeared to them. We just read in John chapter 20, the first two. So there's been some passage of time. We don't know how much. And so Peter may be feeling that, well, he really doesn't care much about me anymore anyway. I hadn't seen him. He, I denied him. I'm the one that denied him. He doesn't want to have much to do with me. So Peter's kind of like, well, I'm going back to fishing. That used to be what I was doing before I came to know Jesus. So I'm going back to fishing. And notice his influence because all the rest of them say, okay, well, we're with you. We're going also. So they all go out and they start fishing. Well, they don't catch anything that night. So in the morning, Jesus calls to them. They don't know it's him at first. He calls out and he says, have you any food? And they said, no. He said, cast on the other side, cast on the right side, and you will find some. And so they cast and there's another miraculous catch of fish in this encounter with them. So therefore, John, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it, he hurries to get to Jesus. He just puts on his coat or his cloak and he jumps in the water and runs to Jesus. And the rest of them come dragging the boat and the fish. Jesus says to him, bring some of the fish and he's cooking a meal for them. And so they have breakfast by the sea there together. And while they're doing that, Jesus has this encounter with Peter. And I want to just point out a few things about this. We know that he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter answers him. And then Jesus responds to him three times. But I want to point out just a couple of things about that. First of all, Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you agape me more than these? First thing I want you to see is it's more than these, more than whatever you enjoy, more than whatever you're doing in life, more than your job, your career, your recreation, more than whatever you could be distracted by, more than what you want to spend your time doing. Do you love me more than these? That's a question that we all need to answer. 
Not that Jesus is inclined to take those things away from us or deny us any of those things we enjoy, but he must be first priority. We must love him more than those. That's the call that Jesus has to follow him. So Jesus is saying to him, do you agape me more than these? Peter's answer, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Two different Greek words for the word love. Agape is the highest form of love, that love that will sacrifice everything for the object of that love. That's the kind of love that Jesus had, sacrificing everything, including his very own life's blood, because of the object that he was in love with, the people, the ones he wanted for his bride, the ones that would come and believe in him and become part of his family. So that's what agape is. Phileo is a brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. It's from Phileo. It's a fondness. It's an affinity to something or to someone. And so there's two different things here. So Jesus, Peter says, I phileo you. And so notice this, Jesus said, feed my lambs. In other words, bring my little ones to pasture and give them food that will cause them to grow. So he asked him again, second time, Simon, do you agape me? Simon says, Lord, you know I phileo you. So we go through this again. Jesus says, tend my sheep. In other words, pastor them as a shepherd would so that you can bring them to pasture. You can lead them in and out. You will be that shepherd to them. And so then Jesus says the last time, do you, do you, now notice this. In verse 17, Jesus is speaking here. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? In other words, do you really love me with that affinity? Do you really care about me? Do you really want what I want? Am I really your friend? Do you really phileo me? Now, Peter's kind of frustrated and he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. I phileo you. And so notice this. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. In other words, bring all of my sheep to nourishment. Be the pastor and the shepherd that I've called you to be to them. So what he's doing is he is taking Peter's level. He's, he's taking and meeting Peter right where he is. And he's saying, yes, I know you phileo me. Do you, you really phileo me? Then I'll accept that because I'm going to take you higher. I'm going to take you to a deeper place. I'm going to teach you what agape love is all about. And in the end, you will agape me. And this became true because in the end of Peter's life, it's recorded by the early church fathers that Peter's declaration was when he was going to be crucified, he said, don't crucify me right side up because I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord was. Crucify me upside down. Peter learned. Peter was taken from a level of phileo, which wasn't the perfect love for God, but God took it and worked from there and brought him to a place where Peter now could say he agaped the Lord more even than life itself. Praise God. Praise God.
And so then the, la the last part of the chapter ends with Peter and John going, and Peter is, Jesus is calling them all to follow him. Peter turns around, sees John, and Jesus tells him, he says, basically, don't worry about him. In, not in the sense that we don't care about one another. It's not what he's talking about. He says, don't compare yourself to him. He's got a race to run. You've got a race to run. He's, his race is different than yours. And I remind you in 2 Timothy 4.18, or 4.8, I'm sorry, Paul is testifying and he says, I have finished my course. I have run my race. We each have a race to run. Let us each do it in honor of Jesus without comparing ourselves to other people. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. And so John ends his, his, uh, uh, his account, his gospel, in verse 24, basically saying this. This is the disciple who testifies of these things. He identifies himself right there as the author. This is John's gospel, John the apostle. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true because he was an eyewitness to all of these things that he's written to us about. And the Holy Spirit has taught him and revealed these things. And he writes them so that we believe in Jesus. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And that, Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today. In Jesus' name.